as we come now before the Word of God. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to the book of Exodus in chapter 2. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus in chapter 2. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, you've told us that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction so that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Lord, would you stir that in us this morning? Produce a hope in us that is anchored in who you are. As we hear now from your word, Would you open our minds to hear and to believe? Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to take up here these first 10 uh, verses of chapter 2. But just to ramp us up into it, I think I might snag the the last verse of chapter 1. So I'll begin here in chapter 1, the very last verse, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, She hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God. Now, if we think about our last few weeks in chapter 1, if we think about chapter 1 of Exodus as really setting the stage of this story, as, as, as giving us the background and context of what's going on in the situation of Egypt, then chapter 2 of Exodus, where we are now, is where we meet the hero of the story. Although it's, it's probably not the best to call Moses the hero, it's probably better to call him the main character 
Uh, he's the one that the, the narrative really follows. But since Moses is also the author of the book of Exodus, what we're reading here is his own autobiography. This is his own written account of his birth. And we'll talk about why it's important that he recorded these events around his birth in just a bit. But first, I think this is maybe a good time for us to address the historicity of the book. Historicity, meaning the historical anchor, that this is real history that we're hearing here. And we need to address this because some have claimed that the events of Exodus, various parts of it, didn't really happen. That they're still useful, but they're mostly symbolic. That the events of Exodus are closer to mythology or closer to legend. And part of their purpose in this, in this beginning section is, is to kind of build up Moses as the hero that we're about to follow. It seems fairly clear from the, the context that Moses does not seem concerned with this. He's not trying to build himself up. In fact, in the next few pages, which we'll see in the coming weeks, Moses kills a man runs away to try to escape the consequences. And then when the Lord calls him back to Egypt, throw, he throws at the Lord every possible excuse he can think of. Not super heroic here. He's not the kind of hero that I really want to hear about. But we do have to acknowledge that the birth narrative here that we've listened to bears some real resemblance to other famous birth accounts of the time, which are legends. So one of the most famous, and a very similar one, is the, the legend of, of Sargon. So Sargon of Akkadie was one of the kings of Mesopotamia who ruled a few centuries before Moses was even born. And, and there's this legend of Sargon, which let me read just a bit of the translation. Listen for the similarities here. Uh, this is what's said about him. My mother conceived me in secret. She gave birth to me in concealment, and she set me in a basket of reeds. She sealed the lid with tar. She cast me into the river, but the river did not rise over me. The water carried me to Aki, the drawer of water, and he lifted me out as he dipped his jar into the river. He took me as his son and raised me and made me his gardener. Now, you may notice in this there are a few similarities to Moses' birth narrative. We've got a child put in a basket made of reeds and tar. Uh, the child is set out on the river. Uh, the child then is found or adopted by someone else, and that child eventually becomes a leader of the people. And so some people would go, well, see, look at this. So Moses is just taking a very old myth and rewriting it into his own story. You know, this, the details of this just can't be a coincidence. So uh, the story of Exodus must have originated in the Sargon legend. Not necessarily. And I think it will help us if we look at why ice cream cones don't murder you. You heard right. If, why ice cream cones don't murder you. This is a very famous example. 
used by economists and statisticians, they noticed as they examined data, as they do day to day, sounds like a very exciting life, uh, that, that as the rate of ice cream sales increased in an area, they also noticed that the rate of murders increased. So this is used then as an, an example to help us distinguish uh, between causation and correlation. Somehow ice cream and murder are related, but how? Causation would say that one is the source or the cause of the other one. So maybe the sugar of the ice cream, you know, makes us jealous or homicidal. I, I don't know what, or maybe, maybe the, the dairy, you know, can I get an amen from the lactose intolerant people that something about you, know, maybe that just makes you so agitated or, or you, know, you know, cones a nice pointy weapon. You know, some of these things uh, seem silly and they are a little bit silly. So maybe they're not related in causation. Instead, they may be correlated. There may be correlation, that there's somehow a relationship without one directly affecting the other. Usually that means there's a third variable that's affecting both of them. So in the case of the ice cream, that variable is probably heat. When it's hot outside, the rate of ice cream sales go up. And when it's hot outside, people also tend to be more agitated, a little more irritable, and to be outside of their homes, interacting with each other on a much higher level. So that variable of heat may be causing an a spike in ice cream and causing a spike in murder, but ice cream is not causing murder. So in the case of, of Sargon and Moses, not necessarily does one cause the other. There may be a third variable which correlates and brings out the similarities. That third variable, I think, is that these events in both stories are logical. They sound illogical as you read the story. I, can't, I don't have a category for putting my kid in the, mile, in the Nile River, but think with me for just a, a moment. Let's think about the logic of the Moses birth narrative. If your child is by law to be killed and is unsafe to have, and you are trying to hide your crying baby the Nile River is the most logical place to hide him. Why? Because it's loud. You know the hiss of the river? Not only can that be soothing to a baby so that they'll relax, ease, it can also help to mask the noises of crying. In fact, most parents, I know we do, have sound machines to help do that very thing even today. We even have one that has river noises for that particular purpose. So it is logical to go to the river. Also, if we put the child on the river, in a basket of reeds and tar, that is the most logical thing to use. Because reeds are light, they'll float, they're buoyant, and tar is going to make it watertight. So what he's in is actually, you know, the breathable styrofoam cooler of the day. 
And then, if that child is discovered on the river by a person of power, it might be difficult to fathom what happens here, but it is also a logical response. That if that person wants to keep and adopt that child into a safe and powerful home, that may be what's best for the child. She's the one who is able to save Moses in a way that his parents could not. These are logical things to do. So the details of Moses' birth are not necessarily drawn from previous myths to hype up some legendary hero. They are logical, plausible actions. They are logically events that could have really occurred and did occur. We even see, you know, there's Miriam, the older sister who was on the lookout for the basket, you know. She's now a primary source for this. She's a witness. I saw this with my own eyes. She can affirm to the listeners who are reading Exodus as she lives, as it's written, yeah, that's true history. I saw it myself. This really happened. Now, all of that said, this is true history but it's written in narrative form. We're not just getting bullet points of details. It's told as a true story, which means that Moses, as he writes it, is telling this story in a particular way, similar to if you're watching a documentary, they're telling you true events in a particular way to help highlight certain things, to help us to understand what's really happening here. And I think Moses, as he writes this, is giving us two particular highlights that we need to notice. The two are the basket and the names. The basket and the names. Let's look at each one of those. So the basket here is mentioned where? In verse, uh, let's see, verses 3 and, and verses 5. This is the thing in which Moses is, is set in the river. Most English translations of this word make it easy to miss the connection that Moses is trying to make here, except the King James Version, which is much clearer about this. But if we were listening to this account in Hebrew, as it was originally written, if we were listeners who understood Hebrew, we would immediately recognize the connection that Moses is making. The word, something is different here about the word basket. There is an entirely different word that is very, very common, a Hebrew word used for woven baskets. It's used all over the place in scriptures, but he does not use that word for basket here. The word he uses here is actually relatively rare in the Bible. In fact, other than here at the beginning of Exodus, it's only used in one other section of the scriptures. And in that section, I, I forget how many times exactly, but it's used a few dozen times. It's very common there. So here in Exodus, Moses is intentionally causing us to draw a parallel back to that text of scripture. Let me read the section that it comes from, part of the section at least. Listen for the word that in Exodus is translated basket. See if you notice it. I'll help us out. Genesis chapter 7. Uh, I'll begin in verse 5. 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floods of water came upon the earth. 
And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds, everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Did you hear it? I tried to be a little heavy-handed there with it. The word here is translated ark. That's the word that Moses is using to describe this basket that he's put in the Nile in. So it's as if he's saying, my mom made a basket, a little ark, out of bulrushes and pitch, and she set that ark on the Nile River. There's an intentional parallel here. So just as God saved Noah and his family in the ark, so also God will save Moses and all his family in this ark. So that's one element that he emphasizes in the narrative. The other is the element of names. Names. You might have noticed in the section that we read here in Exodus that there are zero names actually mentioned except for one that shows up only one time at the very end. So there are tons of people. There's a man and his wife, Moses' dad and mom, and later we learn their names, that's their Amram and Jochebed, but not here. They are not named here. There's also Moses' older sister, and later we learn that her name is Miriam, but not here. She is not named here. There's also Pharaoh's daughter, and of course Pharaoh by extension, and we never learn their names for all the power that they have. We never hear who they are. There's also Moses, who when he is first introduced in the story is just called the son, the fine child. And while he was hidden for three months in his parents' home, surely he had some name. They surely didn't just call him, hey, you baby. He had some name, but we are not even told what that name was. What we are told is finally at the very end of this narrative, in verse 10, we hear the name that we know and recognize, Moses. And that name is given to him, ironically, not by his parents, but by this Egyptian princess who seems to also know some Hebrew. So his name is Moshe, Moses. And the reason she names him that is because Masha, he's drawn out of the water. So again, he is saved from the waters as Noah had been. Together, these things, the basket and the names, all of this is, is emphasizing to us that Moses is part of a kind of flood narrative here. That in this, the story will culminate with a great judgment of water that will fold over upon Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. That in the end, the Lord will rescue his Family, which now is not just Noah's small family, but now the whole people of God. And in the end, God will be honored and celebrated and 
worshipped as a God who is mighty to save. I think this is what Moses wants us to see in this particular birth narrative. But, one more little thing here to tease us. I think it is also important and noteworthy what Moses chooses not to tell us in this narrative. There are lots of things I would like to know about what's going on here that he just stays completely silent on. So we are just left to wonder what I think is one of the biggest questions, at least for me, which is this. What were Moses' parents' plan in setting him in the river? What was their game plan long-term here? So hang with me here. So get a, I don't know if this is technical or not, but this is important. We know at least they were trying to save their child's life. What we don't know is what they were hoping would happen exactly when they put him in the Nile. So, so many just kind of automatically assume that his parents' game plan is, you know what, we're going to get the Egyptian princess to find him and save him. But the text doesn't say that. In fact, I think that's very unlikely for a few reasons. When the princess comes down, we're told to bathe. That word bathe, in my mind, sounds like the mess that happens every other night in our house that gets water all over the floor when we're trying to just get food off of our children. That's not what this is. Bathing here is not, you know, her daily or weekly shower, however often it is. This is not a familiar place that she would go to regularly that Moses' family would know about and could anticipate her being there. Pharaoh and everyone who was wealthy in the Egyptian culture, they all had their own baths in their own houses. They did not need to go down to the river. Only the poor people did that. So what she's doing here that's described as a bath is probably more of a religious ritual, a sign of oneness with the god of the Nile. It's more religious than it is hygienic to get clean. And as a religious act, then, it was probably not very frequent. It may have even been unpredictable at the place she would have gone to do it. So it would have been tricky to track where she is going to, to bathe. Let's add to that that adoption of this child is very, very unlikely. I mean, even if Moses' family could anticipate where the Egyptian princess was going to be, why would they expect that she is going to save this illegal child? I mean, why would the princess not be in line with what her dad has said or not care about what the Hebrews do? If, even if she wants to save, it's a risk to bring this child into Pharaoh's house. It's a risk to try to get that to happen. So is this similar to, to during the Holocaust era, trying to save a Jewish person, and the plan is, I know, we'll get Hitler's daughter to adopt him. And, and, and we'll have Hitler's daughter bring them this Jewish person into Hitler's home. That is very unlikely to work. And then finally, the design and the placement of the basket here. We're told that the basket had to be opened by the princess. It was completely covered. We're also told that it was placed in the reeds. 
It was not just kind of sent down the river. So the reeds were meant to keep that basket still so that it wouldn't float away, which shows that that basket was meant to be hidden. It was meant to be kept. It was not meant to be found. If we take all of these things together, it seems that the family's game planned here, here, what is in their mind for their baby is that they're going to try to hide him in the river for as long as they can. And they're going to have to sneak down there to feed him every so often. They're going to keep him there as many months as they have to until he's old enough to avoid Pharaoh's edict of death. It's not a great plan, but it's the best we've got. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of Moses' mom for a moment. I mean, parenting is hard anyway. But all of this, you've got to imagine, was just kind of a perpetually sinking feeling. That she kind of just always felt uneasy about this. We're not told this, but we can imagine she and her husband become pregnant. Yay. But because of the command of Pharaoh to kill all the Hebrew boys, I'm sure they hoped and prayed to God that their child would be a girl. And then the day comes, and the child is born, a healthy baby boy. Oh, boy. And we're glad in some sense, but now what do we do? Now we have to hide this child. And so, you know, as a parent, we're just constantly shushing your kid in church, usually during the confession of of sin time because it's so quiet and that sort of fear feeling. Imagine that all the time. Three months of just walking on eggshells, afraid that someone's going to hear your child. And you have to hold on to that child for three months until you just can't keep the child quiet anymore. And then what do you do? And I'm sure at night, the two parents were sitting and thinking, just going back to the drawing board, scratching out ideas, coming up with whatever they could feel to do. And and what they end up doing must have felt like some sort of long shot, like they were just chucking a big Hail Hail Mary. We're going to make a basket. We're going to put it in the river day after day after day after day. And then uh, we need someone to watch, and so to avoid suspicion, how about older sister? She's going to go down, and she'll play, and she'll sort of guard. She'll, she'll keep the child, we hope, from sinking in the water. Keep the child, we hope, from floating away down the Nile. Keep the child, we hope, from running into an animal or, or a person. So then now, when the Egyptian princess arrives, that was not a relief. That would have been a moment of panic, of your worst fears realized. It would not have even been a category in his parents' mind to think of a plan like the way it ends up turning out. Okay, here's the plan. We're going to get one of the most powerful people in the land to find our kid and adopt him. And then the Pharaoh's going to bring him into his own house where 
I guess he just won't notice that there's a Hebrew boy that he said uh, shouldn't be killed. You know, well, he'll bring him in, uh, and, and so that'll be great. Uh, but, then, but then we'll still get to nurse the child in the early years, take care of the child, uh, uh, raise the child, teach the child about the true God of the Hebrews. We'll even get paid to do it. She gets wages for doing this. Oh, and by the way, when the child grows up, you know, He's going to be the man that God uses to save all of us, all the whole people of God, for out of slavery in Egypt. That sounds like a great plan. Wouldn't that be great if it worked out that way? But that is impossible. That is unthinkable. So no, let's just stick to the plan and stick him in the river. What we're seeing here, if I lost you, come back. What we're seeing here in this birth account of Moses is God's planned disruption of our best plans. Let me say it again in case you missed it. This is God's planned disruption of our best plans. The Lord is doing something bigger here than they can even fathom doing something bigger here that they even have a category for. They are planning on a family scale. God is planning on an ark scale, on a Noah global scale. His plan, in fact, is so big that they can't even see it yet. Because if you see something so big, so close, it just looks like something flat. Their plan was to put the child in the waters. God's plan was to draw him out of the waters. And so in light of this, we want to learn to trust this God. To trust a God like this. There's a very uh, famous verse in the book of Jeremiah you might even have this framed and hanging on your wall. And if you do, well, great. And if you don't, that's what note cards are for. It's just one verse. You scribble it down and you stick it on your mirror just because we need reminding on these things. This is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. The, the Lord says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I know that sometimes this verse gets misinterpreted or misused to just say, everything's going to go great. And that's not the case. You know, just the verse right before says the context is. The people being told this are in the middle of a decades-long exile in Babylon. So even God's plans may sting for a while. But ultimately, the Lord says, I have a plan for you. And my plan is for good and not evil. My plan is to give you a future and a hope. 
And it's because of my plans that even if it disrupts your plans, my plans will be better than even the best of your own plans. This is a good reminder to hold our plans loosely. It doesn't mean we quit planning altogether. You know, there's a, a, a saying that man plans and God laughs, and that's not quite true. You know, uh, God is not mocking us or belittling us here. Planning, according to the scripture, is good and wise as far as we're able. We're encouraged to try to think ahead, to try to make some practical arrangements. So we might have plans for our year, say. We might have certain career goals or certain projects on our house or, or, or plan on certain crops or flowers to put in in the spring. Or we might have plans for retirement with our pension or, or plans for disaster with forms of insurance. We might have plans for our kids and our grandkids that we would pray for their faith, pray that they'd make good and wise choices, pray that they would love Jesus and find a spouse who loves Jesus. I hope you pray those things for your kids. We might even make really practical arrangements for our kids, like providing for their education or their health, or if you got to do it, making a basket out of reeds and tar to send them out on the river. Got to do what you got to do. And all of these plans may be good, but we should never let ourselves lock into our own plans as the only way should never let our plans keep us from trusting the Lord's plan, from being willing to change and adapt to his plan. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. So we are constantly dependent upon the will of God. But that's a good thing for us. We know that the plans that God has for us may disrupt our plans but his plans are better, which means they're a source of better hope. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you teach us to trust you? Teach us to submit ourselves to all your ways. Would you help us to be wise as we go about our lives, to make good, helpful, godly decisions, and at the same time, Lord, to trust your leading. We know that your plan for our future is better than our own. So, Lord, would you help us to follow you? And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.